Sessions, Dean of Focus Podcast here at Theater Curiosity. I'm Sam. And I'm Brian. And we're pleased to have Jeff and Kendall Klein with us today. Jeff Klein, class of 75, studied clinical science and psychology at CMC and has served on the CMC Board of Trustees since 2010. A longtime media executive, lawyer, writer, and communications professor, Klein was a senior executive at the LA Times for 15 years and is the founder of, the, of a B2B multimedia company. He's also a columnist and a lecturer. Kendall Klein, class of 14, a Phi Beta graduate of CMC, majored in media studies as an expert in digital content strategy, audience development, social media, and client services. Since graduation, she has worked as a strategist at AT&T's Fullscreen, a social-first digital content company that provides creative, strategy, marketing, and even production services for digital creators and brand clients, including national brands such as, such as Met Patel, NBC Universal, and GE. She's now the manager of market intelligence and analytics at Barstool Sports in New York City. Um, so a question we like to ask all our guests to start off the podcast is um, whether they can reflect on an inflection point in their life, a time where they had to change um, their path, whether that be in their career or their personal life. And I was wondering if you guys could share a moment with us. Um, Jeff, I was hoping we could start with you. Sure. I worked at the LA Times for 15 years in a variety of roles. And I always wanted to be the publisher of the LA Times. That was sort of my dream goal, my career objective. And I was moving down a path toward that when uh, there was a significant change in management and it was clear that wasn't going to happen anymore and it was time for me to leave. So I left the place that I'd worked and enjoyed working at for 15 years and had to sort of think about what I was going to do. Was I going to stay in the newspaper business? Was I going to stay in Southern California? Uh, I ended up uh, co-founding a new uh, magazine publishing and multimedia company. Uh, and it ended up being a much more exciting and more interesting role for me. It was a much smaller place. Instead of having 4,000 people work for me, I had three which grew to 300, uh, but it was uh, actually a very difficult time, and I was unsure of how it was going to work out and what I was going to do next. Yeah, I think that's very valuable, especially amongst college students like us, where um, a lot of us, you know, in these four years here kind of go into college sometimes wanting to do one thing and then realizing we have to change. I think you can hear that from Kendall, do you want to chime in? Of course. Um Kind of similarly to what you just said, I left Claremont in 2014 with no job. So by the way, it's possible to get a job after you graduate. Um, seems to be the most surprising thing I tell seniors these days. Um, and I ended up taking a job with a spinning company, so like indoor cycling. Uh, I was their first corporate hire. I was in charge of all marketing. As an avid spinner, I was very excited about this role. It was kind of risky because they... I wasn't joining like the Deloitte's of the world. I was just kind of going into a scrappy startup to figure things out. Um, and after three months, it actually ran out of money and was unable to pay me anymore. So that uh, ended quickly in September after college. And I would say thus far in my career was the first time I was starting to freak out about what I want to do next, if my next decision was going to be my career for the rest of my life. And I ended up getting a job with full screen, how uh, Brian very nicely described it as a digital content machine, basically. And um, I took it 
just kind of curious about it was started as a YouTube company and I took it having known nothing about YouTube and they were really just looking for smart people willing to learn and so that again was a little bit of a risk for me but ended up shaping where my career has gone now the position I took was much more data heavy than I thought I wanted to do I was more into the creative aspect of media and that basically over five years ago shaped the direction that I've gone since then and realized I really do prefer the data side than the creative side so I'd say that's my inflection point nice well thank you so much for both answering that question um something that comes to mind kind of listening to both your answers is that it seems that you both had some kind of shift in terms of your goals and your plans going from creative to kind of more like corporate side and then going from publishing to like other aspects of the entertainment industry so i mean how much of that decision was fueled by potential necessity at the time or and then how much of how much of it was fueled by any kind of potential like changes in approach to the entertainment industry or a potential change to like the entertainment industry itself i think a lot of it has to do with people uh, when i first got to cmc i thought i wanted to be a lawyer and i actually did go to law school but my last semester at cmc i worked as the teaching assistant for a television anchor who came out here every week and taught a class on the relationship between television and politics. And I realized that he was this incredible journalist, so I really got interested in journalism, and I hadn't been interested in journalism before that. So I think um, the relationships that you have and the people you interact with um, really have a significant impact uh, on the choices you make. Uh, because you know they they act as role models, and you see somebody who's doing something really interesting and enjoying it, or you see someone else. I mean, I was a lawyer for a while, and I looked at the lawyers I was working with, and they were twenty years older than me, and they didn't seem very happy. They were making a lot of money, uh, but they were working every weekend and uh, not doing something they loved. So, I think you observe a lot, and you see what the people you care about and are interested in and then you start to say oh i want to be like that person or that person has a good work-life balance or things like that i think those are the things that have impact much more than like what was your major or that sort of thing and that's why it's so important to get to know professors when you're in college i agree with that um you said it much more eloquently than i was going to but uh, kind of similarly, I, well, my dad, I grew up with my dad in the newspaper business, so I, he likes writing, he likes journalism, I always grew up liking writing and journalism, which made me think I was not a data person, I was like a writer, creative writer, um, but when I did hit that inflection point and move to full screen, the, my previous employer, a lot of it was because of a CMC alum, James Sorrell, we'll give him a shout out, CMC 2010, who convinced me that this was the right move in my career. I was going to enter somewhere that I was going to learn quickly and learn fast. And he was completely right. And he taught me the importance of data and using data to tell a story. Um, I even left that team for a bit to go do creative writing within the same company and hated it. And so I tried out my original plan and kind of confirmed that no data and data storytelling is more where my interests lie. But I wouldn't have trusted myself to just go full on into data without 
people like my dad or James Norrell, a trusted CMC alum who I actually knew before CMC as well, who I had relationships with and respected and respected enough that like they had my best interest in at heart. And not only CMC alums, like all of my managers thus far have have taught me those things. And I think it's best to ask a lot of questions and speak up when you think you have an interest somewhere and want to try it out. Um, Cause you won't know if you don't try. Um, so you guys um, have worked and kind of worked in similar fields. And um, so I'll show you can do this app talk tonight about kind of generational perspectives of, of media and how the media landscape has changed. How, how, what is that like kind of um, this relationship of both being family and also working in, in such a similar field and has that ever led to disagreements? Um, yeah, if you can just describe kind of what it's like. Um, well, I think one of the things I wanted to teach my kids as they grew up was how to be a good writer. Um, that was you know, a goal I had. And, and the way I learned to write well was to be edited hard and to be edited aggressively. Um, and if you're never edited aggressively and and you think you're a brilliant writer and then somebody starts to, you get to work in a newspaper or something or a journalism organization and people tear apart your stuff, you go, wait, what's going on? So I was always a very aggressive editor with my kids. I liked to, I taught them by letting them see what I, how I edited things and that sort of thing. And I don't think that ever, um, cause problems. I think maybe it sometimes it intimidated them or they'd say, why didn't I think of that or that sort of thing. But I think it actually worked. And I, and I think as you'll hear tonight in our talk, um, we have similar interests, but very different perspectives. I mean, I came out of a news background. I came out of newspapers. Kendall comes out of brand marketing and social and thinks about, you know, the world through the eyes of brands. And so we have very different eyeballs looking at, uh, at the same field. Um, and I think we learn from each other. So, Yeah, I think even just in shaping our presentation, we had a lot of like, I at one point had to step back and say like, okay, dad, what is the point of our, like, we're going all over the place because I could talk for hours upon hours about my specific field and he has a more news background and I don't really touch news and so we we're just trying to figure out how to mush it all together and so just in that we have the same interests like base level interests and communication and distribution of information is important to us but we've lived in such different professional worlds that we have different perspectives to bring to the table um, I will add that his harsh editing when we were growing up has now just made me that exact person towards anyone I work with. So if you ask any of my coworkers like who copy edits their final, final, final presentation that they're gonna send to a client, it's always me. Like I'm very, I'm like the token devil's advocate, whether it's editing or like nitpicking someone's presentation. But I probably learned that from him. High demand, high demands, high expectations. Um, and though you both kind of mentioned that you've come from very different backgrounds, more and more nowadays you start to see these kind of backgrounds blend. Um, specifically, I mean, you can kind of touch on the Facebook hearings that happened recently in terms of like the responsibilities that a brand has in upholding news cycles or upholding uh, quote unquote fake news or tearing down fake news. And so I think that's a perfect crossover for both of your experiences. So I was curious to see um, your opinions on 
the Facebook hearings on the responsibility that brands have and private companies have mm -hmm. of disseminating news to the general public and whether or not there should be regulation potentially. I'll let the uh, First Amendment lawyer Sorry, talk Scott. first. Um, in the end, I think the responsibility has to be on the individual. I mean, and, and it, there's a much greater responsibility and burden now on the individual than there ever was before because of fake news, because of the pervasiveness of all the media and that sort of thing. And so we all have to be educated and trained in a way where we can decipher news and make better judgments about what is authentic, what is real, what, is, what isn't. Um, and that's just a result of the changing technology. When I grew up in the, in the media world, everybody trusted Walter Cronkite. I mean, he was on the news for 30 minutes, and if when he said, I really think the Vietnam War may not be a very good idea, the whole country changed its mind. There are no more Walter Cronkites. Um, we're all our own Walter Cronkite, and we all have to do that. That being said, it doesn't mean there shouldn't be, that, that corporations like Facebook and others shouldn't take more responsibility for what they're doing. I, I get a little leery of government regulation as sort of a hardcore First Amendment person. I never wanted the government to regulate newspapers, always worried about the government regulating broadcasters. Um, but so it's a, it's a balance and trying to figure out the best way to regulate uh, to also and to, and to incentivize companies to, to do the right thing. Is not a, is, 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 there's no easy answer for that, I, I think. I agree. I mean, I have yet to form a solid opinion one way or the other. I, too, lean more against uh, regulation, but obviously see, like I watched The Great Hack on Netflix, like I see all of the negative consequences of no regulation, but it's this new territory that we're entering um, that I don't think anyone has the right answer right now. It's, it's scary. And just to add, I mean, I think the, the there's different kinds of regulation. So do you regulate content? That makes me very nervous because yeah. one person's content is, an, you know, the, is, is one person's facts is another person's opinion. I'd rather have people educated about what's the difference between fact and opinion so they can figure it out than the government regulate but I think the government should have antitrust laws and should regulate antitrust. And so if someone is using monopolistic power in a way that's detrimental to consumers, then that kind of regulation is more acceptable. Kind of on that note, um, it seems that today as consumers of news, um, currently we have the most choices to really get our news you know, ever before whether that be traditional mediums like radio, newspapers, or television, um, or new mediums like social media, blogs, podcasts. Um, kind of how has the introduction of these new mediums changed the landscape of media and, and kind of how, how both you guys approach media? Well, that's a lot about what we'll be talking about tonight. But all this choice, that consumers have more choice, it's made being in this business more difficult. Newspapers used to make a lot of money when they were the only choice. Um, they're not anymore, and they're not making much money. A lot of them are going out of business. Um, brands used to have it easy deciding, do I advertise on this show or that show? 
Now it's much more complicated and harder to be successful. So it's made it a much more challenging environment, as I guess would be the, my bottom line. Yeah, I agree. And then, so I have a pretty strong background in consumer behavior. And I think one of the big problems we're seeing that we just actually talked about before this that we're not really addressing in our presentation because it's opening a whole different can of worms, but there is a movement right now away from all this choice, like taking a digital detox, deleting your Instagram, um, going on like digital free retreats. And we're really hitting a point in um, society where people are overwhelmed by the amount of technology and choice that are around them. And that for branding and marketing and advertising is another hurdle because how do you reach people if they're no longer on those platforms that you just finally understood how to use? Um, and so there is, I think, a movement towards more conscious consumption. So me picking up my phone to specifically go listen to the daily or check one news site rather than sitting on my phone, listening to music, mindlessly scrolling through Instagram and I don't know, shopping on my iPad on the side. Like, I do think it's not fully present yet, but culture is moving towards a more conscious consumption um, habit. So that's that's the consumer side of what uh, I agree with my dad. It's become a, a really difficult territory to navigate for brands. Wow. And kind of specifically touching on the brands aspect of your response, um, brands have obviously shifted in their entire strategy over the past, like even like decade or like two de decades. Like mm -hmm. you go back 20 years and brands have now become like people essentially. Like they have personalities, they have Twitters that they tweet from, they have like jokes and meme culture. They, they, they are like another person that you interact with on social media. Mm -hmm. And so um, I know that oftentimes like as people, like if we don't connect with it, it can seem kind of jarring to see these companies as, as people. So I kind of wanted to see as someone who works within the branding industry themselves, what your thoughts were on like this shift in content strategy and like the, the shift to try to connect with consumers to try to appeal to their um, it or ego? Yeah, I think, so 100% you hit the nail on the head. We, in my previous job and at my current job, we tell brands they need to act like consumers. They need to be a peer of their consumer. But in order to do that successfully, they need to know their consumer more than, like, better than they know themselves. Um, that's a lot of where my job comes in. I do consumer insights and use that to craft strategies. So you can't just be a Coca-Cola and try and, like, jump in on some meme or, like, make some sort of uh, gif that you saw someone else make and it was funny. It doesn't align with your audience, doesn't align with your brand. So brands have a difficult decision to make. They need to figure out what what that slang they can use that does align with their consumers is. What are those memes that their consumers are consuming elsewhere that resonate and why are they resonating? Um, if you're a millennial mom brand, maybe you're not posting memes on Twitter. Maybe you're posting lists of 10 things to do on Pinterest because that's where your millennial mom consumer is. Um, so I think if you have seen brands that are jarring or not m meshing well with what you want to see because they're acting like too human-y, they might not be doing it right. Um, but I do think that the 
next iteration of all branding and brand advertising is going to be brands acting like influencers. And the whole reason influencers are successful is because they know what their audience wants and they create consistently within that persona. If it's a brand testing out one meme that is geared towards gamers and then testing out a meme that's geared toward millennial dads, half of, half of their consumers are going to be confused. And so it's really figuring out who they are, who their consumers are, and how they can be that quote-unquote peer to their consumers. And I would just add that it really relates to what I said earlier about it being a much more complicated business for the marketers, for the brand strategists, because 20 years ago, what ad agencies spent all their time on was creating really good 60-second television commercials that went out and hit millions of people. And that was kind of fun, and it was creative, and it was very a way to make a lot of money for both the brand and, and everyone thought, oh, that must be working. We're selling more cars. No one knew if it actually was working. And now brands are having to think through the things that Kendall just talked about, which is much harder, much more complicated, and much more grassroots oriented, and much more fragmented and niche I mean, it's like, okay, if I can reach this tiny little audience of a few million people versus doing something that reaches 50 million people, how do I do that? And what do I spend on it? And what do I say? And, and so <clears throat> and it's part of the reason why ad agencies are now falling. So. Um, and Kendall, actually, uh, your, your senior thesis actually came up in uh, my psych class uh, the other day. And then to find oh, out wow. that you're coming to give a talk here was uh, pretty Wh amazing. What I class? Mean, um, it's just an intro psych with oh. Professor Brown. But, uh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I looked into it, and it does an amazing job of highlighting and analyzing the role of social, of social media um, in eating disorders, disordered eating, and body satisfaction for college-age women. Um, and I was just curious, what were some of the biggest takeaways around your thesis, and, and has anything improved or changed um, since the time you wrote your thesis? Um, I, I think that number one takeaway was social media did not introduce any new theories or new problems it just exacerbated existing ones so like social comparison theory um where i compare myself to other people or um think my worth is based on what you think of me um that is just exacerbated on social media because i'm doing it all the time there's a numerical value of likes with my photos i know who likes my photos i know who doesn't like my photos or follows me or unfollows me um and so it's this we know too much, and it is able to bring someone who is susceptible to those thoughts um, down a downward spiral, essentially, of um, just disordered thinking, disordered eating, body dysmorphia. And on the flip side, the biggest takeaway, because I did, I mean, I grappled with this. I, we're not going to get everyone to delete social media. It's not a thing that's going to happen. And so the biggest thing for me is awareness. Um, knowing that pictures are edited, knowing that people are posting the best parts of their lives on Facebook. They're not posting their sad nights alone on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or what have you. And just being aware and like using that awareness as confidence in yourself. Um, I do think there's been a lot of movement since I wrote my thesis. There's been 
a lot of Photoshop that's been removed from, like, American Eagle doesn't have Photoshop in their, um, like, uh, underwear campaigns, and they use people of all different shapes, sizes, colors, genders. Um, they've started using some special education um, groups to really just try and represent all types of people. Um, I also think, and I wrote something about this with my previous company, the body positive movement did not do as much as it could have. It really brought more attention to, like, love your body if it looks like this. Um, love your, like, do this so your body looks good so then you love it. Um, and there is this movement uh, called body neutrality that is just starting recently, and it's more about what your body does for you. It breathes, it moves. Um, I worked with uh, a female positive brand a nonprofit for the last couple of years and one of our big things is hosting workout classes and we're we only allow instructors to say things like um, strengthen your glutes to protect your low back strengthen your quads so you don't injure your knees and like there's we're not allowed to say anything um, about how you look and we started like implementing it in some uh, younger like seventh grade girl classes to try and remind people that like our body is worth so much more than what it looks like and it's more like it's getting you from point A to point B. It's allowing you to think critically. It's allowing you to be a human. And so I think it was a long-winded way of saying my ultimate takeaway from my thesis is awareness. So teaching 13-year-old girls that what they see on social media is not necessarily real or something that they need to compare themselves to. Um, but yeah, it is, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, and the nonprofit that she's talking about is using social media to communicate its counsel. And so social media can be used in a positive way to counter some of these things. Right. And it is, I mean, I've had an internal struggle every so often in the last five or six years of, am I like a social media marketing against somehow against like what I feel is right um and ultimately i think like yes if you're manipulating people to think a certain way about themselves to sell a beauty product i would never be able to work on a campaign like that but it is the future of advertising and if you can convince um i don't know a brand that's not doing something bad for society to sell more checks mix or something that i just was working on great we're reaching the people who want Chex Mix and now they know that there's new flavors of Chex Mix like we did I mean I don't know it's whatever makes you sleep at night right (laughs) um and so uh in your past semester kind of touched on influencers and in 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 this conversation we've kind of mentioned them a couple times and so I was kind of curious about um the role that influencers play in like not only like body creation or body dysmorphia but also in terms of like there seems to be an undue responsibility on influencers to be like the celebrities of the now it's and the power hasn't shifted away from traditional celebrities like beyonce mm-hmm. um will smith etc big name actors big name like professional creatives but influencers who have no like formal media training potentially have no like formal structure in place to kind of help them manage like comments on their posts to manage random dms um, right. to manage this large coalition of people who may hate them or may, like, feel strongly negative towards their, like, opinions or toward their posts. 
So how do you think these influencers nowadays, as like marketers, as a business, as a brand, like how do they distinguish between the self and the brand, and how might that be confused by social media? That's a great question. I don't envy influencers in this day and age. You're right. They get a lot of hate. They get a lot of nasty comments. I think right now a lot of influencers are their brand. There is no separation between self and brand, and I think that's the point. That's what the appeal is. That's why they have these followings. That The influencers, especially right now, that are really taking off are those that are completely themselves, completely authentic, girls that aren't wearing makeup, like they're talking about gross things that you might not think like a Beyonce would talk about, um, and they're just real. And I think that is like the new brand like I don't there was an Atlantic article a couple months ago about like the Instagram aesthetic is dying and it's moving away from this like be the perfect specimen and just be your true authentic self and I think a lot of that comes down to like if an influencer is approached by a brand to do a branding campaign he or she is not going to take it if it's not fitting within his or her brand and so for better or for worse, I don't think influencers right now do separate themselves from their brand. I think they're building up their brand um, because that's how they're making money. But I do think they're becoming more choosy about what brands they work with because they want to make sure it's aligned with um, what their audience is already used to. I do think that influencers see the most backlash when they take a brand deal that they're they're audience then says like you just did this for the money like there's no way you wear that brand or you shop at x y or z um and so i don't yeah i don't i mean you don't have do you have an opinion on well, that? i would just i, th I was going to make a comment that the thing that's interesting to me is how um the influencers have sort of democratized celebrityhood i mean uh it used to be that celebrities had all these, this entourage of people around them that ma managed those issues for them. They'd say, oh, you don't do that product placement or do this or don't do that movie, do this movie. And now you have like thousands of influencers, many of whom make millions of dollars. But I mean, one of the things that I learned from watching Kendall at full screen was that's part of what full screen did. They managed influencers. If you got big enough, you needed business advice. You needed marketing advice. You couldn't do it all yourself. And so there's a whole industry that's grown up that never existed before, or if it did, it was for a few people um, to help people sort of think through these marketing and right. business-related issues. A lot of them are 16 years old. They're not – that's why they are their brand because they are not even aware that they can distinguish themselves from their brand. So once they do get big, they partner with a full screen or – some other talent agency and they have a talent manager that helps them with their content strategy and make sure they're, you know, keeping up a consistent posting right. cadence. Um, it's a crazy world. <laughs> um, unfortunately, we only have time for um, one more question here and I'm going to shift a little bit. Um, we're going to focus on CMC and you guys both uh, graduated from CMC. I was wondering how kind of both your experiences here at CMC um, and just specifically how that's kind of to shape your decisions on as a member of the board of trustees and I'm sure you rely on input from Kendall as well I was just curious 
about your guys' opinion currently on CMC, the direction it's heading, um, and how your experiences here have kind of um, impacted your views. Um, well, uh, I went to CMC undergrad, but then I also went to Stanford and Columbia for law and graduate school. So I think I've been to you know, three of the very best schools in the country. And uh, I never go back to Stanford. I don't support Columbia very much. Uh, for some reason, I've always come back to CMC uh, engaged on center boards and eventually went on the board. Um, and so there was something about CMC that built a stronger bond than those other places. And maybe because it's smaller, but I think a lot of it has to do with people. I've had relationship with relationships with professors who I got to know as an undergraduate for 40 years. Um, they really cared about me as an individual. I learned from them, not just um, about academic subjects, but I mean, you know, I became a better poker player because of Ricardo Quinones. Um, and um, I learned about family from John Snortum. I mean, I think that um, a lot of it had to, has to do with people. And so it's both fellow students, staff, and professors. And my sense is that that's one of the things that hasn't changed very much. It's a much, it's, you know, when I was here, it was 800 people, now there's 1,400 people, it's bigger. It's harder to make friends with more people or get to know your professors, but still easier than almost any other kind of place. <clears throat> and so I think that's what's uh, made it special. And so I would not want anything to happen where they, you lost that sense of intimacy. If we said, oh, we could be a bigger school or we could have classes with 35, 40 people in them instead of 18, those would all be bad things. That's why the investment in science that is being proposed is a good thing because science classes here have gotten too large. Um, uh, so, I, I mean, it, you know, it's a, it, it's a much harder place to get into. It's got a much better gym. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and some of the dorms even have air conditioning, but, um, or a lot of them, I guess, but, uh, but it still has, uh, and it's one of the things we sort of touch on tonight is it still has at its core, a lot of the, the great things that, that make it, um, an, an incredible institution. Yeah. I think going back to the people aspect is huge. I, was a media studies major. I was one of three in my class. So if you think back, obviously I had an amazing academic career here, but when you think back to academics specifically, I was kind of on the outside. And if it weren't for the people, like at any other school, a major that small would probably feel really ostracized. And if it wasn't for the people here, that the bonds I made, the friends I made, um, I don't think I would, it wouldn't have made sense for me to stay, to be honest, um, at a school that I was trying to study something that wasn't quite, I mean, it's gotten much better since I've left, but I wasn't, I was kind of like in the opening classes of what is media studies. Um, but it was the, the smart, really smart people in that program, in my GEs and my other classes I took at CMC that kept me around. 
And I always like to say, like, my CMC friends that are still a large majority of my friends now are, like, the people I can introduce to anyone and leave them. Like, they can talk to anyone. I don't need to babysit them. They have questions. They know a lot of stuff about random, like, not a lot of things about random things. Um, Like, they're just never-ending interesting people. And having seen other friends go to other schools and obviously graduate from there and move on into their careers, they don't have the strong bonds that, that CMCers do have or that connection that, like, if I saw you guys outside of CMC and found out you went to CMC, boom, friends, like, immediately. Um, someone approached me in a coffee shop the other day in New York who graduated 2018. Who We didn't overlap at all, but she saw a sticker on my computer, and we exchanged a 15-minute conversation and talked about – she was also a media studies major. I was floored. But, um, I mean, I just think it's, like, the the community aspect is really killer um, and keeps us all coming back and keeps us all checking in. I know a lot of my friends are, like, stoked to see this ATH presentation. Like, the fact that the ATH is such a thing. Like, if I mention it to anyone else, everyone's like, what is the ATH? I don't know how. you're Like, you're giving a lecture in a, in a classroom. I'm like, no, it's kind of bigger than that. Mm-hmm. But it, it is it is a... A, tight, a tight-knit community. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us uh, once again. And remember, everybody, just stay hungry. <laughs>